And it's good to be together as the people of God, isn't it? Let's, uh, let's pray together as we go to God's word. Almighty God, we come before you this morning eager to hear from you. Father, we've sung to you. We've said that you are good and gracious. You are holy. You are Lord Almighty. You deserve the greater glory. Father, we confess today that we have not honored your greater glory this week. Father, we have fallen short of your glory. We pray that you would forgive us. We approach you this morning as an assembly only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we gather today, we go to your word, and we, we pray as we see in your word that the gospel would advance. Father, we, we see this, and we desire this here. Father, would you let the gospel advance this week with our brother Vladimir and Phoebe as they serve in Ukraine? God, I pray that you would get, bless their work and, and give favor to their work. Bless uh, their ministry of the gospel in Ukraine. God, may the gospel advance there, we pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us, our church, as we spread out this week throughout this community. God, would you give us boldness? Would you allow us to speak winsomely about Jesus Christ to those around us? Father, may the, the gospel advance through our body in this community, we pray. Father, I also pray that you would be with us now as we are gathered in this place. Give us knowledge and all discernment as we read your word. Father, let your spirit work in this place. Be with me. God, let my words be helpful and clear to this body. Father, may the gospel advance even now in this place. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when Christ is your life, all else becomes secondary. It was late in the afternoon on Tuesday, June 8th, 1824, that the American missionary was arrested. He was making dinner with his wife when, without warning, a dozen Burmese soldiers burst into the house of Adoniram Judson. His wife, Nancy, pleaded for mercy as they bound her husband's arms with a sharp wire, cutting off circulation and causing his arms to swell up. They took Judson to what was called the death prison, where he would be kept in a dark room with no food, no communication, and no comfort. He was bound with two sets of shackles on his legs, which at night were, were fed through a bamboo rod and raised high enough so that only his shoulders and his head still touched the ground. His pregnant wife, Nancy, regularly traveled to the prison and snuck in, sleep, slipping him food through a fence and, so that he didn't starve. She, in the meantime, nearly did starve. She gave birth to his daughter, who also nearly died while he was in prison. And he was imprisoned there for 17 months. His wife's health deteriorated, so that not long after he was finally released, she passed away. Six months later, his daughter also passed away. 
Adoniram Judson, the first American Baptist missionary, served for Christ and lost much in Burma, which is now modern-day Myanmar. But Judson had counted the cost. He had known this risk from the very beginning. Listen to just an amazing letter that he wrote before even leaving for the mission field. He wrote this to his wife's father asking for permission to marry the man's daughter. Listen to what he said. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne, his home, and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the exclamations of praise which shall redound her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? What a proposal letter. Adoniram Judson knew exactly what he was walking into. For him, Christ was his life, and all else became secondary. Well, this morning, we return to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We meet Paul again, happy in Jesus Christ, but he is happily in chains. He is happily being maligned. He is happily facing execution for Jesus Christ. And it's from this place that we see Paul's heart for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. If you've brought your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. I hope you have. Uh, you will be better blessed if you can follow along in your copy of God's Word to see that what I'm actually saying is just already here in the text. In his letter here, Paul had already written a salutation that we saw last week, followed by an opening section of prayer and thanks for this church that he was writing to. Now this week, Paul gives an update as a missionary. It would have been common to find this in a letter such as this. Interestingly, by the way, notice as we go along how little of this update is actually about Paul and how much more of it is about the advance of the gospel. Well, in this update to the church, Paul shows us his, his two fundamental concerns. That's how I'm going to break up our passage today. So uh, his two concerns will be my outline for the day. First, we'll see the advance of the gospel in verses 12 through 18, and then we'll see his concern for the honor of Christ in verses 18b through 26. I pray that as we look at this passage today, that God will deepen our zeal to see Christ proclaimed 
and his name honored in our church body. First, consider with me how Paul was deeply concerned for the advance and forward progress of the gospel. Even from a Roman jail cell, it's the whole point of this first half of the paragraph, or of the passage, rather. Start with me in verse 12. We read this. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul wants the church in Philippi to know that the gospel has really moved forward through what he says, all that has happened to him. What is he talking about here? What does he mean, all that has happened to me? Shortly by this point, the church in Philippi had heard some of the updates of what had taken place since Paul had left in Acts chapter 16. Paul had barely escaped being lynched by in a riot. Paul had landed in prison. He had had to invoke his Roman citizenship. And then he had suffered delayed hearings and delayed releases. He uh, survived a dangerous voyage and a storm and a shipwreck followed by a snake bite. And now, after all of this hardship, Paul, sent out from the Philippian church, landed in prison, sitting in prison. Surely, the work that they sent him out for was halted. Surely, it had just stopped. Or had it? Verse 12, Paul says these hardships, and especially being in prison, had not made his gospel work fall behind. No, actually, God had used this to make the gospel advance. What man had meant for evil, God used for good. Paul points out three ways that the gospel advanced here. So these are three subpoints to my first main point, all right? So first, the gospel advances through Paul's witness. We see this in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Word is getting out. It has become known. Paul is in prison because of this man, Jesus Christ. Paul says, that my imprisonment, or literally my chains, are for Christ. Now, there's actually a little bit of a play on words here in the original, which seems to emphasize that it was not only that he was chained up because of Christ, but that he was chained up with Christ. They are Christ's chains that are on him. So he is united to Christ in his captivity. If you think about it, the reversal here is just striking. Paul is not imprisoned by Caesar. He is a slave to Christ Jesus. Paul, the chains which hold Paul are not Caesar's chains. They are Christ's chains. The idea is that his imprisonment was not Caesar's plan. It was Christ's plan. His imprisonment did not further Caesar's rule. No, his imprisonment furthered the rule of Jesus Christ. How did it further the gospel? 
Who is hearing about this Christ? The text tells us. Paul was in Rome. He had appealed to Caesar and was waiting. And he refers here to the imperial guard. Now, history tells us that this imperial guard, or the praetorian guard, was an elite select group of 9,000 Roman soldiers who served for Caesar in the imperial palace. So here's the picture, and it's phenomenal, all right? Look at what's happening here. These soldiers would have taken four to six hour shifts watching this man named Paul, guarding him for months on end, rotating, standing guard over this missionary day after day, shift after shift, month after month. And we realize Paul is not their captive. They are Paul's captive audience. The implication from verse 13 is that Paul, realizing he has this captive audience, began sharing the reason for his chains until the whole guard, he says, 9,000 elite soldiers had eventually heard of Christ. It's beautiful. And then, not only that, but notice it says, also to all the rest. Who are all the rest, Paul? This too is fascinating. Uh, You'll actually notice if you were to turn to the end of the letter, that Paul is going to close this letter with some greetings. And in chapter 4, verse 22, we'll find this. He says, The brothers who are with me greet you. All of the saints greet you, especially the saints of Caesar's household. Wait, wait, wait a second here. The saints of Caesar's household? It seems that Paul's chains gave him the opportunity to share about being in Christ with not only the entire imperial guard, but to Caesar's own household. The gospel advanced through Paul, even in prison. But next we see that the gospel also advanced through other brothers in Rome. Look at the effect in the next verse that Paul's imprisonment had on these brothers. In verse 14 we read, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Apparently, there are other believers in Rome who had heard of Paul's imprisonment. They were there with with Paul, and as Paul is writing over to Philippi, and his imprisonment gave them confidence. Now, this is actually ironic, isn't it? Normally, imprisonment is meant as a deterrent, isn't it? Governments use this. Think about it. We put people in prison to stop them from what they're doing and to tell everyone else, if you keep doing this, this is what will happen to you. But not so here. This isn't how it worked for the Christians in Rome. No, the reverse happened. They lost their fear. The the brothers in Rome, they, they saw what had happened to Paul, and they became more bold themselves to share the gospel. It's almost as if realizing, they realized, if that's the worst that can happen to us, why wouldn't we share about this resurrection hope of Jesus Christ? All Rome can do is put us in jail. All Rome could do is maybe kill us. That's it. Friends, this is the perspective that Christians who really believe in Jesus Christ have always had throughout history. Our hope is so much better We have nothing to fear. 
one of my, my favorite missionary heroes, John Payton, was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the 1800s. This kind of courage that this verse is talking about marked his whole ministry as he left, again, the safety of his homeland to go share the gospel with a tribe of cannibals. Get that, a tribe of cannibals. On one occasion, John Payton was, was visiting the church as he was preparing to leave, and an older gentleman in the church by the name of Mr. Dixon stood up and told John Payton how foolish he was. He tried to dissuade Peyton, to make him fear his future. The man exclaimed, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Listen to Peyton's response. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my, re my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. What fearlessness. <laughs> what perspective. Christian friends, it, if you are like verse 14, and you are much more bold to speak the word without fear, the cannibals that you face this week will likely not risk your body, but will rather risk your reputation and your comfort. The worst they could do to Paul is to put him in prison and take his life. The worst that they could do to John Payton is to take his life. What's the worst they can do to you if you speak about Jesus Christ? Maybe your reputation is on the line. Maybe being thought well of in the eyes of the world is on the line. Youth, if, if you claim the name of Christ, maybe you'll fit in just a, a little bit less because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul shared the gospel, and this emboldened others to do the same. He seized his opportunity of imprisonment. And let me ask you, what opportunity do you have this week that you can seize? Maybe it's lunch with a coworker, or maybe it's a conversation at the community pool. Maybe it's a conversation with a cashier that you keep seeing at the grocery store. I don't know. You fill in the blank. What is the opportunity that the Lord has sovereignly placed in your life that you can share the gospel boldly without fear? Well, notice thirdly that the gospel next advances, and this time it advances through counterfeit motives. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. 
and in that I rejoice. And we have to stop here because this is just fascinating what's happening in the text. In these four verses, Paul mentions two groups, okay? First, at the end of 15 and 16, Paul mentions the group of believers that we just talked about, all right? These are the dear Christians who are preaching Christ out of goodwill, he says. They are preaching Christ out of love. They are meaning to do Paul only good because they know that he has been put in prison for the defense of the gospel. But then there's this other group who Paul says are preaching the gospel but are wanting to hurt him. They have true content mixed with false intent. They actually preach Christ but with wrong motives in order to afflict Paul. Now, we don't know how this would have afflicted Paul. Perhaps they thought it might make Paul envy their freedom outside of prison. Or perhaps in some way they were preaching in such a way that Paul would receive harsher treatment or perhaps a more difficult trial that he was facing. We don't know the specifics, but we do know their motives. Rather than goodwill, they were preaching from envy and rivalry. Rather than love, they were preaching out of selfish ambition, wanting to hurt Paul. Notice here this word selfish ambition in the text, which is the heart of the problem. This is a misplaced zeal for one's own promotion and superiority. You can read more about selfish ambition, by the way, in, in James 3. This would be a great Sunday afternoon activity for you. But there in James 3, we see that selfish ambition is, is so evil that it's actually demonic. James says it acts like a, a type of counterfeit wisdom. In, in a similar way, here in our passage in verse 18, Paul calls it preaching out of pretense. This is a, a preaching to give a false show and being a hypocrite the whole time. It's a bit like putting, being an actor and putting on a mask to play a part. These men were preaching Christ, but with selfish motives. Can you feel the difficulty that Paul is in in this context? Paul sees these other men, these other ministers of the gospel— causing him harm. Paul sees these men had selfish ambition. They clearly were not working for Christ's glory. They were not protecting Christ's church, but rather they were seeking their own promotion. These men in Rome were seeking their own popularity, their own tenure. And as preachers of the gospel of grace, they should have been helping Paul in prison not afflicting him. They should have been protecting the church, not using the church to serve themselves. In their sin, they prioritized what was good for them. This is evil. So, in the face of this evil, what does Paul do? What would you do? Well, look at verse 18. <laughs> he says... What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, 
Just a note here. Elsewhere, Paul calls out men like this, and by name. And elsewhere, he exposes them and their sin, because they are in sin, and they have wronged the church. But this time, he doesn't focus on them. This time, it seems fitting that Paul wants to teach the church about the priority of the gospel. So he says, what then? So what? At least others are hearing the gospel, and in that I rejoice. But but Paul, you're being wronged. But Paul, these men are in sin. And he says, I can rejoice. My eyes are fixed on the gospel. If Paul can find joy, even in this evil situation, you know he must be consumed with Christ and his gospel. After all, Paul had once himself harmed the church, and Christ had brought him to repentance. Paul's singular focus is on Jesus Christ and his gospel, and so he rejoices. Friends, is your focus on Christ and the gospel this fervent? Or is, is it this focused? Is it this joyful? Or are you distracted today? Fix your eyes on Jesus. When Christ is our life, all else becomes secondary. Paul will not be held captive to the imperial guard. Paul will not be held captive by fear. Paul will not be held captive by rivalry or selfish ambition. No, Paul will be held captive to Jesus Christ. And we see this clearly in the second half of the passage. So let's turn there now. We first saw the advance of the gospel in the first half of the passage. Now, number two, we see Paul's concern for the honor of Christ. Look at verses 19 through 20 first. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, Paul is here, sitting, awaiting trial, potentially to be executed. What would you feel like if you were sitting there? What would you feel like if you were in his position? What would you be worried about? What would be, be your concerns? Well, Paul's concern is not his own life, but it's the honor of Christ. And he's happy about it. He's heavily concerned about Jesus Christ. He begins with, yes, and I will rejoice, as if we didn't believe him the first time. No, really, I'm rejoicing, church. He's repeating what he's saying here. Why was he so joyful in prison? Verse 19, because he knows he will be delivered. God will deliver him using their prayers and the help of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean that he will be delivered here in verse 19? I actually don't think he's talking about prison at this point in the text. The word he uses, and and there's several markers here in the text, seem to indicate that he's actually thinking about a greater deliverance. 
not just his imprisonment. He's not just talking about escaping execution, but rather he's talking about an ultimate final deliverance that will come whether he lives or whether he dies. He will be ultimately delivered. So Paul rejoices because his salvation is sure. God will use the saints of, and their prayers to preserve him. God will use the Spirit to preserve him. Regardless of whether he lives or dies, he has eternal deliverance in Christ. That's how I understand this passage. And so in verse 20, he then has this confident hope. It's more than just a wishfulness. It's an eager expectation that he will not be ashamed. Rather, Jesus will be honored. Paul only hopes that, that Jesus will be honored. That's my job. No matter what happens to me, may Jesus Christ be honored. It, it's kind of like the posture of a servant serving behind a king in a courtroom, right? The, the servant's job is, is to make the king look good. The servant is, is ready to do whatever the king needs. The servant is ready to, to give himself to the king at the king's disposal. The servant's concern is to see that that king, seated up on his throne, is rightly honored as king. This is Paul. His primary concern is that Jesus will be honored. And notice, he wants Jesus to be honored with full courage, that is, with his bold proclamation, defending the gospel. And he wants Jesus to be honored through his body, or his whole self, whether by life or by death. Wait a second. Is that right? Even whether by life or death? Wouldn't Christ be more honored if Paul was released from prison? Wouldn't Christ be more honored if, if Paul could continue to minister to the churches? No, Paul is admitting something here and is, is teaching us in the process. In Paul's worldview, it's quite possible that Christ may be honored more through hardship, even death, than through ease and long life. Maybe you've heard it taught in our world today that if you obey rightly, you will receive a blessed life. Uh, if you watch late-night Christian television, you'll probably hear, hear some version of this. If you honor Christ, you'll receive physical blessing, or your best life now, or you might receive health, or you might receive some version of prosperity. Things will go well for you if you obey Jesus. Well, let me tell you, that is not what the Bible teaches. And we see that in this verse. God does not promise freedom from hardship. No, quite the opposite. God often uses hardship in this fallen world for his glory, by his design. It's no surprise to us to see that Christ may be honored by him living, or Christ might be honored by Paul dying. If Paul dies, he can show that Christ is more precious than life itself. Which brings us to verse 21. And this here is a, it's a glorious verse to look at together. I'm sure most of you know it by heart. Let's read it in context. I'll read verses 21 through 24. He writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To live is Christ. Paul's life, like we talked about last week, is so identified with Christ. It's so wrapped up in Christ. And his, his service to the gospel is, is so linked to who Christ is that to continue in this world means that he has one singular focus, Jesus Christ. Continued life for Paul means life in Christ. In Galatians 2.20, he'll say this. He'll say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul's view of this life in Christ is, is a bit like wearing tinted glasses. Perhaps you've put on tinted glasses before. I'm imagining like a yellow or red tint that you look through, right? You know what I mean. Uh, the idea is that when you put them on, everything that you see around you becomes colored. Your world becomes a red world. Suddenly, everything you see is red. It's painted in red. This is similar in a small way to, to Paul's new life in Christ. He is so identified with Christ that he sees everything in Christ. To live is Christ. Christ is his life. It's his whole world. Everything in his world is colored by Christ. His chains, his enemies, his future work, his relationship, his talking to the guards, his everything he's doing, it's all tinted by Christ. He is in Christ. To live for Paul is Christ. Christians here today, I wonder, can you say, is your world, your whole world, colored by Jesus Christ? Every part of your day, every part of your thoughts, every word that you speak to your spouse, to your family, every action that you do in the workplace tomorrow, is it colored by Christ? Can you look at your life and say, truly, for me, to live is Christ? Visitors, if you've come this morning and you're not decided about your faith, uh, it's important that you understand why this is so important to us Christians. See, Christians believe that all of us were created to know God and to enjoy God forever. But we have we've sinned against God. We deserve God's punishment. Rather than leaving us in our sin, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life before taking the punishment of death and wrath that we deserve on the cross. He then rose from the grave and conquered death. So now anyone who repents, even you, if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, you will be saved from the judgment that your sin deserves. And in being saved, you are then united to Christ and to his church. Christians believe that we don't merely escape death, or eternal death, that is. 
we gain a whole new life in Christ. The beauty is that for Christians, we believe that Christ not only rescues us from sin, but he calls us to himself. As one author put it, he's not merely a judge that says, you may go, but he's also a father that says, you may come. If you haven't dealt with your sin today, if you haven't looked to Christ in faith, I, I plead with you today, talk to myself or, or someone else. Be reconciled to God. This orients everything. Like we saw earlier from Judson or John Payton, it now, it, we see it orients everything for Paul. To live in is Christ means that Paul will be serving the church if he's still alive. Look at that in verse 22. He says, For if I am to live in the flesh, that means stay here on earth, that means fruitful labor for me. Or, or look down in verse 24. He says, To remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Because his life was in Christ, he knew he could serve the church if he escaped execution. I wonder, can you say this? I think of some of you. Some of you here are in your retirement years. Florida has a couple of people in their retirement years, right? If the Lord prolongs your life, that is, you continue in the flesh, will you be able to say with Paul in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Or for all of us, do you look at your lives here on earth as one great big opportunity to labor for Jesus Christ joyfully? Can you say to live is Christ? Well, Paul also says to die is gain. Far from being morbid, Paul knew what death means for a Christian. Verse 23, death means he will be with Christ. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is gain. As one author writes, for the child of God, death is not the end, but merely the door for into a higher and more exalted life of intimate contact with Christ. Death is but the dark valley opening into eternity of delight if you are in Christ. Ultimately, death for the believer means more of Jesus Christ. Friends, here is the test of what you truly believe. When staring death in the face, do you see a pit or a doorway? For Paul, it was a doorway. Death was the doorway to being with his Savior. Are you afraid of death today? If you're in Christ, let me just tell you, you shouldn't be. If your faith is weak today, but you believe in Christ, ask God even now to give you faith to believe that death in Christ is gain. You get to be with Christ. Let that lead you to desire heaven. May we desire heaven more. To desire being with Christ is far better for us. And so Paul, in prison, 
says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Two options. The joy of staying and serving with you or the joy of being with Christ. And when he thinks through these two options, Paul says he's hard-pressed. Now, you might have noticed as I read through this passage, his language at some point sounds like he's making a choice. Don't be distracted by this. I think his language is meant to be hypothetical. He's saying if he could choose, whether execution or release. On the other side of both of these options is joy. But I don't think he's suggesting he actually can choose. After all, execution is what's in view. We are not the, the givers and takers of life. That's not what Paul's saying here. And in fact, Paul expects that he will live. Look down at verses 25 and 26. He expects to remain with them. He wants to give them reason to glory in Christ. He expects to come to them again. And all of this he wants, notice it says, for their progress and joy in the faith. This, this word progress is the same word for advance which he started the passage in. He is still concerned from beginning to end about the advance of the gospel. He's concerned that Christ will be glorified as the gospel progresses. Well, we should conclude. What about you? What would tomorrow look like if every part of your day you said to live is Christ? What would tomorrow look like if in your normal routine you made it your aim that the gospel would advance? May God use our church for that end. I, I began the sermon with uh, Adonai Judson, Suffering for Christ. You might be curious to hear the end of the story. After his wife, Nancy, passed away, Judson would remarry, only to then watch his second wife also die on the mission field. He would walk through then intense depression, but came out of it and is, is known for saying, when Christ calls me home from this world, I shall go with gladness. He would stay in Burma for years until his death in 1850, he died having only seen a few Burmese believers come to faith. But due to his fruitful labors, the entire Bible was translated into Burmese. In 200 years since his death, or so, a massive Christian church has grown up due to the seeds that he planted in Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. Friends, when Christ is your life, all else becomes secondary. May it be true of us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the example of our brother Paul. We thank you for his love for the church and his love for the advance of the gospel. We thank you that we, like Paul, are found in Christ. That for us, we can say to live is Christ. And if we die, this is gain. Father, I pray that you would unite our church around Christ and his gospel. Father, I pray that you would protect us from any selfish ambition and any rivalry. Father, I pray that you would allow us to focus our eyes on Jesus Christ today. We pray this in his name. Amen.